Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. The legend of the Rohirrim, the Erlingas, goes back many ages of men. The story of their coming south to the aid of Gondor is well known and the lands they settled in, now known as Rohan. But less is known of the lands they left in the north. Long ago, they resided in the north of the Vale of Anduin. Nestled in the Vale of Gundabad lies the ruins of their once proud city of Framsburg, the city of the Eothed. Hello, Callum. Hello, Josh. How are you doing? I'm. I'm very excited to to talk about the city of the Eothed. I'm excited to talk about the city of the Eothed as well. Also, incredibly hot. We're recording it on what must be one of the hottest days of the year, and I'm not very happy about it. To be honest. No. <laughs> um, well, uh, in role playing games, you can never be too hot or too cold because it's not real. Wow, that's, that's quite a philosophical start. I suppose that's true. As long as I don't need to make a constitution saving throw during the recording, it'll be <laughs> fine. I do have a fan literally pointed at my feet, which is keeping me at a reasonable temperature. Good. Well, um, well, if we make any mistakes on this episode, and then it's because we're too warm. Yes, we're just in some kind of fever dream. That's right. Uh, we have a small amount of housekeeping to do at the beginning of the episode, which is that our Twitter account is now live. So if you're an enthusiastic listener of the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. And our handle is at Fellowship Face. That sounded very professional, didn't it? It did. I Well done, Marisha. <laughs> yes, we do the notes and the announcements. In yeah, I feel like I would be Sam. Doing the, uh, doing the ridiculous advertisements. Yeah, our listeners don't know that you're always dressed up in costume while we record this. They would never know. <laughs> I did that for the first time we ever played uh, D&D. You did do that when you were dressed as a bard. It was excellent. I yeah, think it set it was, the tone very nicely. There was not much going on. <laughs> <laughs> it was easier to get dressed up during lockdown when we didn't have you know jobs or places to go. <laughs> Yeah. There's very little to be doing. Yeah. Um, so, so what we're we talking about today? We're talking about uh, an adventure that we ran. It was the third, I think, journey that we did. Yes. We'll maybe come back to the second one. So the first one was the pre-written adventure going through the paths of Markwood, the Elf Path. Yes. Uh, the second one was uh, a journey into the Dimmerhorn, uh, to the Dimmerhorn in Gladdenfields, which. I can't remember. I think that I think there is a pre-written modules on that. So the third one we did was a journey north to the city of the Eothed, which is mentioned in the Rovanian region guide and fits in with the lore, although not something that's really that explored. And uh, I just, I don't know, something about it really captured my imagination. I just wanted to go there. So, um, well, how did, how did it start, I guess? You know, what's your recollection as a player? We've very fortunate to have uh, James, who was on the last uh, episodes, uh, who's wrote his journal in the early days, and that's been a, a great boon to come back and remember what on earth happened. Um, a lot happened. Yes. 
I think this is a good adventure to talk about because it feels like a classic role-playing adventure where we set out on a journey. There was a kind of dungeon delvey quest, and at the end of it, there was some loot and there was some lore, and then there was a kind of dramatic uh, final scene. It feels like the whole thing, which was over several sessions, was kind of a classic D&D tabletop role-playing adventure, which I think is why it's worth talking about. The kind of scene setting of it was that Theodric, uh, we'd been in the, the Vale of Anduin, my character Theodric, had been made a Thane by Bjorn. So after the adventure we'd done previously, he was rewarded by taking over as the Thane of a small village, the village of Stonyford, which we'll talk about. Well, we have to do we'll talk- several Stonyford episodes because that was, uh, that was a big favourite for the players. Stony Ford, which became our own little village, which we built up, and a huge amount happened there. And it's it's worth talking about probably separately from this. But the context is that Theodric has been made the Thane of Stony Ford, so of some import in the, the Bjorning people. And Bjorn has now approached Theodric and the party to undertake a mission for him, which is that he has seen orcs in his land. He's concerned about the movements of orcs and seemingly that different groups of disparate orcs have sort of joined together with common purpose. So Theodric and the party were tasked with heading north to investigate. Uh, investigate was kind of the, the key word. That was our task uh, to bring back some information and to slay any orcs uh, that were in our way. Uh, it was a very classic hook for an adventure. And we went through uh, quite a tumultuous journey, which I think is well worth talking about, both what the experience was like as a player and maybe we could look behind the curtain a bit about how you prepared it. Now, is it safe to say this is an adventure which had a hook in the books, which you then took and ran with to create what we experienced? Yes, I think that's pretty much exactly it. On page 17 of the Rovanian Region Guide, there is notable places, and it tells you about the city of the Aethred, and it's two paragraphs long. Um, and I think later on in the book, there's a, yes, there's the next page, there's a little story about a possible adventure there. But it's it's just capturing your imagination, really, is what it's doing. It's, it's, a, it's a location on a map, it's two couple of paragraphs, but there's not, I don't think, and maybe write, write in if I'm getting this wrong, because I might, might be mistaken, and there might be an adventure out there somewhere that I use, but I'm pretty sure that I um, uh, made this all up. So, um, But I think what, what really captured me about that description was my players know about Rohan. I know about Rohan. We know about those people. And I thought it really interesting that we know, you know, Errol led the people... Uh, south to, to aid I mean, Kyrian, um, the rule of Gondor at that time and this battle. And uh, there's even like a fan film about that story, about the message going north. And that's known. So, okay, where did they come from? What was the place they left behind? What, what connects those people to this land? And that's something like the history of Wilderland, which isn't that well established. I've delved into the lore of it a lot to to prep games that's part of it that i quite like is this sort of like archaeology you know what's on the land who came before why is this like this what 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 are these ruins for like those ruins of a lost age that's talked about one of the journey events and i i love that those moments in the books and the films when they're wandering around and then they're like oh here's these huge statues you know what came before what what parts of 
the land and what was the story of the people. I love it. This is something that comes up a lot as a dungeon master, a game master, a lore master, whatever format you're playing. Dungeons or ruins appear in loads of games. And the onus is often on the dungeon master to have an explanation of why adventurers would stumble upon something from a previous age and why that might be filled with monsters or magical items or so there, there, there needs to be some reason that there was this past world and you've done it really well with Tolkien's world and obviously the lore there exists to kind of allow for that and yeah it feels like there was enough of a space here for us to tell a story that weaved in the small snippets of lore that existed yes there's stuff that's I sometimes find it hard to unpack in my head now exactly what is <laughs> true talking canon and what is come from the books, but part of me doesn't really care um, because I feel like it meshes well. Yeah, just I guess when I'm prepping adventures, something just captures my imagination. And that's, you know, you have to, when you're writing a story, you have to be interested in it yourself if you're the one doing all the prep for it. So something about this just really captured my imagination and also it was a fairly long journey um i don't, don't seem to have the have uh, basically the journey uh sheet for every other journey it would seem but i can't <laughs> seem to find this one so i'm not sure what happened to that one um so i can't tell you the exact distance of miles but it, it felt at the time like quite a punishing difficult adventure for i think level yes. three characters it was around that yeah yeah a long time ago for us now, but um, so for a bit of a bit of context, uh, the party had grown a little bit. We've already heard about my character Thedric, uh, James's character Torwell, the scholar, and Stuart, who came on to speak about his dwarf uh, wanderer Runin. We had another Bjorning, Scott's character Carhu, and then just before this adventure, we had two new players join us, and with that, two new characters which mm. grew our party up to six which is quite hefty for uh you know you'd been dming for a little while but not that long a six player party is quite a lot they introduced two new characters there was the uh dunadine wanderer the ranger uh malbeth played by a friend brendan well you can't say um, that you can't say that name you have to say Harefoot. you're right i need to keep the the secret name Harefoot, who is the dunadine wanderer yep good no one will know and bert joined us and he was playing a hobbit and the yeah. least hobbit hobbit imaginable his name was isambard and he was just complete chaos and he was a perfect addition to the party yeah so was... it was a party of six yeah it was it was a big step up and I, you know I, I naively didn't really know but i it really it, added something they, they were both adventurers that were there i think malbeth had come uh, oops um Harefoot had come over because um there'd been problems with wargs in the west side of the misty mountains he'd come over to see what was happening on the east side and isambard had um, been a bit mysterious about why exactly he wasn't in hobbiton anymore um which maybe we'll talk about bert uh talk with bert about that at some point <laughs> uh, he was a bit of a shady hobbit in some ways it was complete chaos. Yes. Uh, and they, they were uh, tasked. Well, they, they kind of volunteered to join. I actually reflect on that and think 
Um, could I have done those intros better? You know, knowing what I know now, talking about session zeros and like joint character creation, embedding players in the world. Um, I definitely felt like if I look back at that moment now, I would have done it very differently. Not saying it went wrong. It just was um, uh, hard. I think it was maybe harder for them to like gel in at first because the rest of the party had this shared story uh, yeah. and sort of shared adventure history already. Um, but that was the, the thing. Um, Bjorn had intercepted this messenger and asked him to head north. So we set out at party six. There was a bit of role play between us all because it was kind of their first introduction to the group. The first really significant moment, though, was we've been travelling up the east shore of the River Anduin, which has been a big part of all our stories and is a huge part of, of uh, the various stories that Tolkien tells. And we reached a point where we needed to cross over and we knew of the North Ford, which was this point that you could safely cross the river. It was not often used anymore by the Bjornings, and we had a sense that it might be dangerous in some way. Uh, the party came upon it, and I can remember you describing it. There was a, uh, an area where there was kind of rapids and then a shallow area that was a ford. It was possible to, to wade across. And when we arrived, there was a single figure on the West Bank. So we were kind of presented that this was going to be an encounter of some kind, whether a, a social encounter or a combat encounter or some kind of puzzle or challenge. We knew something was happening. Uh, and it turned into, I think, one of the best encounters we've ever actually run. It was, it was really dynamic and exciting. How did you prep that, that kind of first main encounter of this adventure? Uh, yes, yeah, so I was still getting used to running games. We were playing on Roll20. Uh, a lot of my prep for battles at that time resolved, revolved around finding maps that were that were usable. And also, I was using like top-down tokens. I've since switched to the like little, um, uh, disc tokens uh, that you can just put a photo in, which is so much easier yeah. um, to find because you can just find any photo you want and put it into a crater. Uh, token creator and uh, it makes it so easy so uh, looking back at that again I'm like god that took me so much time and effort to find these little things so I guess um, I'm talking about this the other day uh, off the podcast that I think I found a map I knew there was a ford and I knew they wanted to have an encounter there so I went and found a map and then when it meant that when I was I quite like having the map up when you're coming up to something and then basically I just describe what the map is to the players so that I can give a lot of detail. So talking about like there's a rocky prominence on the side, the rapids, yeah. and making it very clear like what you see because um, it can be quite hard about something to ground your own imagination in to be clear or consistent, particularly if it runs over multiple sessions. And I guess I knew who was at the Ford as well, um, who were a group of uh, sort of, men or, or people that lived in the Anduin Vale who were not really, they were not sort of a, a war, like opposed to the Bjornings, a, a group led by a different leader who um, has come uh, back to be more significant later in the campaign. Um, they're in the books. Um, interestingly, in the books, there's like several different groups of men. So there's like the Gundlings and there's 
uh, something called Volter, and there's lots of different people in the Andron Vale. But when yeah. I was prepping, I, I found it a bit overwhelming. And I think it's one of these things where there's presented a lot of choice. Like, here's some characters that you could use the Andron Vale. And what I did was I sort of took quite a few of these different peoples and amalgamated them. Yeah. Because it felt like there was there was too much going on. There's too many different peoples. So I just sort of made it into one uh, group of people that dwelt in the northwest of the Andron Vale. I remember we came up to the cross and you described it and there was a figure visible uh, and it wasn't clear. It was a man. It wasn't clear whether or not they were friend or foe. And at this point, Theodric had just, as we'd leveled up, got a new ability, which really sort of flavoured his character, which is called, I believe, and I may get this wrong, a friend to all, I think is what mm. the, the mechanical rule is, which basically meant that, as it sounds, he was friendly with everyone. It fitted in with his character as being this older guy who'd been on the road a long time, who kind of used words to, to get places, and he was a healer. The rule meant in combat, as long as he didn't attack someone, an intelligent foe wouldn't attack him. And in my head, he was effectively a medic. He was effectively the Red Cross. He was on the battlefield. As long as he didn't fight, which he didn't because he was terrible, uh, yes. he would he, he would be safe. It was particularly relevant in this one that if there are enemies that are agents of the shadow, then they will attack you. So that's a continual question that comes up for one of the wonder abilities is, is this person a, a servant of the shadow? Yes or no, which is sometimes, the, you know, obviously is a gray area in the middle there. Yeah. So there's that slight restriction on when this applies. Since it would apply on this occasion, I really wanted to get straight into using it as an ability. So we kind of discussed as a party how we were going to get across and we sensed there was maybe the opportunity for diplomacy and that theater would be the perfect face that he was you know an older man he didn't look too physically threatening and he had this mechanical ability where he could basically avoid being attacked so we thought right, we'll send him across but a bit of planning you know classic bit of uh, rpg planning figuring out everything that's going on we thought it could go south pretty quickly it could turn into combat we don't want Phaedric standing on his own so how can we get around that Scott suggested that Carhu, his character, the other Bjorn, a huge, uh, fearsome slayer character, would basically aid Theodric across the water because Theodric was a frail old man and he needed help. Great. We thought that way. Carhu's on hand if combat happens. Bert chimes in, the chaotic hobbit and uh, out-of-the-box thinker, and says, well, I'm a hobbit, I'm tiny. I could hide underneath Carhu's cloak and as you cross the river, I could potentially slip over to the other side. So our plan has gone from we'll use diplomacy to a kind of threefold plan of we'll try diplomacy. We've also sent our best martial character over the river. We've also sent our sneaky uh, rogue character over the river to act as a sort of a spy. Let's just go for it, which we did. And th that was the approach we took. And you were very accommodating. We crossed the river. There was a, It was quite tense. A role had to be made. It, it kind of worked. I was engaged in a bit of role play with this character. It seemed like it might go both ways. They were charging quite high toll. I was trying to play the victim a bit. <clears throat> and Isambard the Hobbit had successfully snuck onto the other bank. Everything looked like it was going well until 
he stumbled into the group of other characters and their dogs who were lying in wait on the other side and basically triggered a combat from that moment. The game was afoot. It went from a, a kind of a sort of a social encounter to clearly a combat encounter and initiative was rolled. Um, but I liked that the, it felt like, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, there could have been an opportunity to negotiate across. Oh, yeah. By the, I, in my head, I, I prepped it as a combat. But I thought, well, if they just pay the fee and go across, then th- these people are just after some money. Um, yeah. If they sense you're weak, then they they might just prey on you. Um, but uh, I don't think they would get the sense of that with the size of the party and number of people. Um, so there's probably a bit of nervousness there about them as well. I don't remember too much about it, but I did write down all their names and... Um, might come back later on because basically the combat quite quickly. Well, I'm trying to remember what was your, what's your memory of the combat? I feel I feel like it was. It swung to and fro a bit. I think because although we'd sort of initiated a plan, we weren't really in a very optimal position for the combat to start because Thedric and Carhu were basically standing in the open in the middle of a river. Isambard was way off on his own, like probably about 100 feet from any other member of the party because he'd snuck onto the other bank where it turned out there were, you know, hostiles. And everyone else was on the original bank of the river. And I think it made for a good start to combat because rather than us all being set up in an optimal position, there was a lot of repositioning and trying to get, you know, our martial characters out front, our ranged attackers into position. Theodric was just out in the open, basically just an old man who couldn't attack anyone who was suddenly in the midst of this combat. I liked it. It felt like it was really quite dynamic. And I think a lot of that just came from the map. Just having this river map, which had this ford and these islands in it, meant that it wasn't a pitched battle. Like the terrain really guided what we needed to do. Yeah. I think this is a good thing to talk about in... Because we're, we're sort of talking about combat a lot in this episode because there was quite a few big uh, combat encounters. And in the Loremaster's Guide, it does talk a lot about how do you introduce interests or obstacles so it's not just a, a bag of hit points versus a bag of hit points. You know, what, what makes the encounter interesting? And it's terrain, it's weather, it's the feel. So having the river was a real obstacle and there was, there was a check required to get across. People yep. could have been washed downstream. There was risk. And there's also the breaking, you know, one group of the party were on the other side. They had to shoot. There was a lot of cover mechanics coming up, half and three quarters cover. So the terrain really had a big impact there. And then there was the like objectives about, you know, are you trying to stop people getting away? And there was a sort of like chasing down the bandits. And um, yeah, I think it was a successful combat. I think at that point it was the best combat you'd run. And it was certainly one of my strongest memories of us playing was that combat. And I think because the map meant it was this really like dynamic environment. I also think something my big believer in is that combat should have objectives beyond just kill the monsters. Yeah. That can be fun sometimes, particularly if it's like a big monster, you know, you're fighting a dragon, you want to defeat the dragon. Great. Classic. That's good fun. But I think most of the time it's fun for a, a combat encounter to have a different objective, whether that's you want to escape or you're trying to capture someone, or you're trying to get into a particular place, so that the fighting, there's always that decision of, okay, am I going to keep being involved in this combat, or am I going to try and achieve our objective? And I think a lot of the fun of the game comes from that. And in this one, there was multiple objectives. There was, we wanted to get across the river, 
and had kind of agreed that we didn't need to fight these people. Like if we could escape on the other side of the river, I think we would have done. Um, but we also were worried about what lay on the other side. And we kind of said, we don't really want any of them to get away. Like if we could tie them up before someone can go and, you know, raise the alarm, that would be good. And we also talked about potentially trying to get some information from them. So there was a lot of different kind of objectives all happening at once. And I think it made the combat fun. And I think it meant that on their turn, everyone had kind of different reasons for doing things like rather than just like, Oh, I'm a martial character. It's my turn. I'll just roll the dice to swing my sword. It was like, am I in the optimum position? You know, should I chase that person down or, or do I use this turn to get through the water? So yeah, I thought it was really good combat, which kept us challenged for quite a long period of time. In in D anD D, you you have magic, you have utility, and there's often things that you can do that are making things easier. In aim, you're very restricted to well, if they run faster than I run, they're going to get away. Um, I can shoot them, but I will kill them. You know, you can't do non-lethal with arrows, um, with ranged attacks. Uh, so you're kind of really restricted, which then makes everything more focused and much more reliant on the terrain and stuff like that you know if that's difficult terrain that's huge you know that's half your movement speed you can't just cast fly and, and go up the hill yeah. um you can't teleport you, you, so your movement is is so key and that's come out a couple of times like carhu being a slayer gets extra movement yeah. Lunin being a dwarf is slightly slower that's a really big impact in these combats so i think this is where i was starting to get a bit more of a hold of actually how to make combat interesting um so we had this what i've labeled the first battle of the north ford because uh, there's quite a few battles that happened there and i think three three battles we've had three all quite separate in time all very different styles of battle and i think you use the same map each yeah, time the same map this is great yep. for prep you're like oh uh this is already thanks very much past gallon i think it probably shows how good the map is that you were able to get three very different encounters out of one map yeah um so you made it across the ford you got past these people um who they are maybe we'll come back to uh, in a later episode and you made your way north and i think there was some uh, journey rolls you uh, saw some wonders there was like a waterfall or something yeah you, you saw some stuff but we're not really talking about the journey rules today and you made your way north to the city of the Ethed, which was a fair travel further north and i had written down some notes and there was some knowledge that you could gain with a history check and i did the sort of like gated history check of lots of different dcs and did you actually prep that by kind of like predetermining those DCs yes. and then putting the information that was available? Yeah. So I wrote down like a paragraph and then just every sentence you needed a higher level. So I can even just, are you interested to tell? I think you probably got that over a 20 because uh, Torvald was there and he was just ridiculous at these things. Um, so just for a bit of background lore, I guess. So uh, the basic information you got on any role was uh, it was an ancient city of the uh, Northmen of uh, Horsemen of the North. Uh, on a five to ten, you got the predecessors of they were the predecessors of the Rohirrim. Uh, next one you got once was called the city of the Eothed, and then it was re- renamed Framsburg after Fram, son of Frumgar, who slew the dragon Scaffa, which is in the yes. Book. So I think you did know that. And if you got we over twenty or an actual twenty, is what I wrote. Uh, 
that there were stories told of an ancient tomb beneath the city, too well hidden even for the most cunning orc to find. And I believe Torvald invoked his foresight ability around the stage yes. on the journey north. And he, he, uh, well, maybe not you tell me because I can't really remember what I said because I knew what I was he, foreshadowing. It was actually, um, it was, it was slightly before the ford, actually. Um, during that role play sequence of us heading north to the ford when we were introducing the new characters, and you were describing the land and the, the eaves of Mirkwood and the terrain changing, we got to the point where the elf path, which is further mm. north of Bjorn's Hall, the, there's a, an entrance into Mirkwood at the elf path, which we had come out of on our first adventure. Yeah. When we got kind of in sight of that, you described being this kind of this place of intrigue we were drawn to it but not necessarily in a kind of peaceful way it was slightly ominous and for Torvald he saw what you basically described as these like dark voids like eyes like two dark eyes staring from the darkness of the forest um, was this this foreshadowing he had, which was really quite unsettling. And I don't think as a character he shared it. As players, we all found it quite unsettling. And it was kind of weighing on, on Torvald's mind. Um, and then that then, quite a bit later on, oh, that's it. Um, became uh, a kind of uh, the foreshadowing for what we found down in the tomb. And I think that was a really good example of like foreshadowing way in advance, because I think that was a full session. It was like the next session before... We actually encountered it, the, the thing that you were foreshadowing, and you'd laid the groundwork for that, which which I think built up the kind of intrigue around Framsburg. Something else I enjoyed about this adventure was that up until this point, everywhere we had been was uh, like a populated place. So obviously we'd come from Lake Town, the, the mysterious land to the east of Mirkwood. Mm -hmm. We'd been to Bjorn's Hall. We'd been to Woodersell and some of the settlements of the woodmen. Uh, I think we visited Mountain Hall, which is a woodman settlement in the Misty Mountains, and we'd visited Stonyford, which becomes a big part of our story. And it was kind of the game had been either we were in places of population, role playing, or we were in the wilderness between them. This was the first time that actually the the place we were going, the destination city was where the adventure was rather than the place of safety so that was quite fun i thought it was it was it was cool that the end of the journey rather than it being like oh a nice warm fire we'll be safe it was like oh no actually like the difficult bit is at the end of the journey <laughs> which i think made it quite fun and i remember you described uh the kind of the landscape and we could see it and we were there was like a ravine and there was a rope bridge leading towards the city and we knew oh, yeah. there were orcs there and it felt really like really like ominous and a kind of like, well, should we turn back? Like this feels, you know, there's this rickety rope bridge across this ravine and these rapids. And then there's this ruined city we think is full of orcs. And it was, it allowed for some really good role play. And I think had it not been for, you know, Theodric feeling, you know, it's our duty to clear this place out. <laughs> we probably would have turned back. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was thinking about, you know, prepping for this episode. I was going on Roll20 and looking back at all the old pages. And this is the first time I did something that, I don't know where I got this idea, if it was something that I picked up online or not. But what I started doing was whenever I had a location, I would find art for it yes. uh, online. Um, so I found this amazing painting of this uh, sort of ruined uh, 
very, very low-level uh, stone ruins because they, they talk in the book that probably the city would have been mostly made of wood, like, say, uh, we see Edoras being made yes. mostly of wood. So it probably was a similar structure to that. So it wouldn't have been much ruins. And uh, this bridge is maintained over this valley. But where it is on the map, it's it's very near that there's Lady Well and the Grayland Rivers, which join around there. So there's a lot of rivers. So I imagine they would be quite low down. And the art was really fitted. And that let me... I started basically, every time there was a place, I would have like an art piece on Roll20 to give this... I think you did it in a game. And I, I found it really evocative. So I would do that and then... I would put at the bottom of the page a map, like a battle map. So yeah. now every time we're on a battle map, like I basically would show you the page and then you would get to see the art at the top, the bottom would be hidden. And then if we move to combat, if we move to combat, then I could just reveal the bottom. But even when you're in the combat, you've still got this artwork to give you the feel. Yeah, I really like it. I like doing it like that. And I basically, I think mostly have continued to do that because I, I find it may, helps me as well describing it because then I could like, be a bit more uh you know it, obviously that was evocative for you so it's, it's worked it's landed and i think that i i find that a lot easier to do with something to ground my imagination on well i mean so much of the game is effectively just our shared imagination i actually think every so often having a prompt particularly when it's something that could turn into combat so describing like the wilderness like you know murkwood whatever what I'm imagining as you're describing it might be different from what mm. Stuart's imagining. And that's fine because we're, we're imagining being in the wilderness. It doesn't really matter exactly what we're picturing. It becomes more important with that shared imagination when we might go to combat because it might become strategic. So actually, although it doesn't matter how I'm envisaging the edge of the woods, it does matter how we're all envisaging the shape of these fortifications because we might need to have a plan to go into them so mm -hmm. i think every so often when it's like that putting up a prompt is really helpful so yeah uh and i think what happened from there is that you you snuck in and looked around the city for a while and then discovered there was a sort of orc fortress a fortified area that had been repaired yeah, in some way yeah at the top uh, which again in the book is basically like there's nothing there it's just a ruin so this was a slight alteration of that but the idea was you know um Josh and I have been talking about Alexandria uh, uh, Limited Calamity and just watched oh. the uh, DM roundtable with uh, the free DMs from Alexandria. And they were talking in that about there needs to be, like, thinking of the logic, the reason behind yes. the game. Like, when you're designing a story, this has to make sense. And for me, I thought, well, you know, this is a really strategic location at the joining of these two rivers. It's fairly close to Gundabad, but sort of outside of their sphere of influence and encroaching down into an area where there's quite a lot of travel and trade going up the Grey Mountain Narrows, potentially. So it would be a really strategic place to hold. So if I was running Gundabad, then I would want to have a group of orcs stationed there to do raids or, or, you know, maybe somebody else controls it. But it would make sense to me that that would be it's so close to yeah. Gundabad that there would be some there. Or particularly if there's been, you know, messages sent to the south, where would they meet? That's where they would meet. Um, so it made sense. So it quickly became in your mind actually an outpost. It wasn't just a story hook yeah. of there's a city, there might be some orcs. It was there was actually quite a logical reason there would be an outpost. And once you've established that, it's like, well, how many orcs would there be? What would they be doing? And already you kind of build a picture. Yes. And uh, yeah, they, they snuck in and were trying to 
explore. I think we did do some exploring and it was relatively successful. And I actually don't think I thought, I, I thought you would try and sneak into the basement because of the ruin thing. And I put a lot of orcs in with like a commander and like put some thought into how they would be structured. And your initial attempts, I think there was some debate in the party about what exactly to do and yeah. trying to sneak in. And then I'm pretty sure someone just rolled a natural one on the stealth at one point. Yeah, I remember it quite well. I think you did really well because exploring the city, there were a lot of roles. So it felt to us like we were being stealthy, but that if we failed, that that would potentially trigger moving into a different phase. Like there might become combat if we failed our stealth. So I think that's really good um, sort of game management because it feels tense for us because the roles matter, because if we don't do well, we're going to end up in a different situation. And if we do do well, we potentially skip some danger. I remember you described it and that the the keep had a kind of curtain wall which had a hole in it and there was a way up onto the roof and there was a part of the inside of it which was higher up and had a roof and we were weighing up do we go through the the hole in the wall or do we sneak up onto the roof and I think we decided that the element of surprise would be important and I think that goes back to the whole like logic thing. Like actually when you're putting enemies into a place, if there's logic to it, it lets the players plan because we, you've given us the impression it was an orc outpost. So for us, it was, oh, well, there'll likely be patrols. Um, so we need to be stealthy. We climbed up onto the roof. And I think that is when things started to go badly. I think we missed some roles and someone maybe missed a role to climb properly and it effectively triggered a combat because our presence was no longer secretive. Um, and yeah, it was a very different battle to the one at the Ford because this time, rather than it being a, we are clearly trying to go from one side of the river to the other to get past these enemies. It was kind of a pitched battle that it felt like retreat was a very legitimate option. Like mm. the door was kind of open that we could just run away. Obviously we would fail our objective, but that was an option. And the, the battle was really hard. Yeah. It, I, did anybody go down? I know Ember Torwald fell off a roof at one point because at that point I was playing around with critical fumbles, which, um, you know, if you've not come across before, if you roll a natural one, then some additional bad thing happens. And I find them really funny. And I I think some of the players really enjoy them and some people really don't. And I've since decided that it's not worth, you know, it's bad enough missing or, or rolling uh, badly without having that additional problem. I don't know how you feel about them. You, you quite like things going wrong. so I quite like things going wrong, so I don't mind it. I do agree, though, that if, if you use a one, for instance, that means there's a 5% chance that things will go not just wrong, but badly enough wrong <laughs> that you might get hurt. Yeah. And once you start to get higher levels as heroes, you're like, is there really a 5% chance every time you're doing a normal thing that you might yeah. actually... Yeah, it's bad enough I... that you will just always miss an attack. So I've moved, I've not done it anymore, but uh, I, I it was quite it, it did lead to some quite funny moments as we did it. Um, yeah, Torvald fell off a roof, and because I mean he was a healer, uh, or he is a healer, and Theodric was a healer as well. Um, once he went got badly injured, Theodric wanted to help, and actually, I remember a point when I was on a roof, and I think there was maybe a ten foot drop down to where Torvald was, um, but. I needed to also use my action to actually try and heal him. 
and I think you said to me, if I use my action to climb down, I wouldn't have to like roll to get off the roof, but it would have meant I couldn't heal. So instead I effectively just like slid off the roof and took damage so that I could heal Torvald. And it was really heroic. And actually I felt, it felt quite exciting in combat, even though I wasn't attacking anyone, that it was quite like dynamic. And again, because the map had different levels and also you've done a great job because like the orcs had some melee fighters, there were some ranged fighters, and there was a commander. Like they they were quite tactically astute. It wasn't just a big mob. Um, and the commander had some uh, command abilities. Go figure. Uh, so I think those were just the profiles, like uh, Snaga and uh, Orc Warrior, and there's like an Orc Commander or Chieftain, I think, in yeah. the Lore Master's Guide. So these low levels, you know, it's just it's, it's easy enough to to use those. But I would often like play around with the profiles just a little bit, like add different things on, change the weapons out sometimes. Uh, one of the other things I play is Middle Earth Strategy Battle Game, which is the Games Workshop, Lord of the Rings, Warhammer um, books. And I find them really great inspiration sometimes for rules to homebrew into uh, Adventures of Middle Earth. Um, you'd think the best thing about that would be, oh, I've got all these Lord of the Rings miniatures to play <laughs> Middle Earth with, but we've still not managed to actually play in person. Always played online. We keep thinking, like, we're going to play in person and going to take advantage of all these miniatures, which would be great one, one day. We, one will, day. we will do it. But there, there are, like, really interesting rules that, that you know, obviously isn't port across, but just getting ideas for, like, oh, you know, what does this army fight like? How, how do these people, what could, what could I add in? Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I found out like a really, that was like a big combat. There's a lot of people. It was. Because you're still using top-down tokens and was like spinning them around to face the right, right way. Why? I don't know. Yeah, it was. Um, but there was a lot going on because, I mean, that was six player characters. There were uh, easily twice as many orcs of different types. And you were working on not only a big map, but a map that effectively had different levels because there were like roofs, and then there were like sort of stepped portions. So I remember that a lot of us were asking questions like, how high up is this building? Which I don't know if you prepped in advance, but we were like, oh, what what height is that tower? And you were having to like write on the map, like that's 20 feet. And then this is this. And the, the map was was big. And uh, it, I mean, if, as players, it felt really epic. And it filled up almost an entire session, I think. Um, it was a nine round combat. Nine round combat, and there were six of us, and at least that's three different combat. types of enemies. So that's nine. Uh, what's that like? Eight potentially eighty-one different individual yeah. turns or something. It's crazy that uh, like nine round combat is fifty-four seconds. Wow, <laughs> huge combat. Huge, absolutely massive combat. Um, um, but yeah, it, it it was. I've just. I found. That I used to write down like the initiative tracker and the number of rounds that, that played through. Yeah, it was. I learned a lot. I, I think you know. I'm maybe contrasting that with a combat that I've run more recently, um, in Gundabad that we keep hinting at, which is very close by to this. Definitely got a lot more efficient, and I think finding ways to you know, and it'll be hard at the beginning to run big combats. It, it just will be. So just starting small, working your way up. The things that I think difficult are initiative. I always find that just difficult to get going and get it right and not get it stagnated. And in that, I just roll 20, get them to select their tokens and use the initiative tracker on that. Um, when I played in person, I found it really tricky to find a way 
to manage it and not just take ages. And then also just like making things as simple as possible for you with the um, tokens. So Roll20 is great for that. Again, just I, I, I've got really lazy. So set everything up so it automates the, automatically rolls damage. So all I have to do is open the token, click one button, and then it'll roll the attack and it'll roll the damage and it's quicker. I know there's some excitement about rolling dice physically, but I really want the combat to be quick and efficient. Yeah. That's the most I important agree. thing to me. I I don't really, I'm not really that fussed about rolling the dice. <laughs> I think it's different as a player and as a DM though, because as a player, you do in combat, particularly in combat that size, a big chunk of what you're doing is being the audience. Like you're not, you're not doing anything. You're watching other people do their turn. So I think when it comes to your turn, you want like rolling the dice is like part yes. of what you get to do. Yeah. Whereas the DM, you're managing, you're basically either narrating what your people are doing, you're narrating what's happening to the characters and you're doing all the housekeeping for the monsters. Like I could, I'm agree with you. I'm like you, if there's anything I can do to simplify that, I'm doing it. Like yeah. I've got a lot to manage and I want it to be, I want the players to be center stage. I don't want them to be sitting watching me for five minutes trying to yeah. figure out which dice I'm rolling for the orc commander instead of for the orc archers. Yeah. I, I can sense like I'm losing people's attention if the enemy's turns take too long. So like, you know, just chucking everybody on the same initiative role. I think the orc commander was on a different one and then the rest of the orcs yeah. were on. Or like if there's like groups of enemy, then they'll they'll share an initiative order just to make like yeah. to split up the turns. And then not really narrating it too much. Like an orc charges in and they attack. You know, I'm not really going to narrate the enemies. I think it's m- much more fun to really delve into the players and their yes. actions and make the orcs quite generic. Um, apart from the commander, usually would like make them bell some commands or, you know, so add something to give a sense that they're working in tactical. But there's a real balance between you want the combat to be interesting and flavorful and the enemies to feel that they've got a personality and be alive. But you also don't want to bog it down and spend ages me just role playing a look of orcs talking to each other, you know, and everyone yeah. else is watching. Uh, yeah. I really want the players to be uh, the agents of uh, the action. It was an epic battle, and I, I imagine it was quite stressful for you to run. It was really a joy to be in because it felt like we'd had this big journey, which had a combat encounter and it had various challenges on the way. We'd arrived at the city, which felt like a really adventurous thing to do, and then that was kind of crowned by this huge pitched battle in a castle, real like classic fantasy stuff. I think the other thing about making the battle epic. And what this adventure was a really good example of was, and I'd be interested to know how much you planned this, was over a long adventure kind of whittling down the player's resources. You set off on the adventure and everyone's got all their abilities, all their arrows, all their hit points. Mm. Feels heroic. The longer the adventure goes on, the more you're spending it, the more challenging things can become. And I think as as the, the game master, there's a lot of fun to be had once... The players are a bit depleted. I've certainly yeah. found that. I, I love that in this game because the, the rest mechanics that we, we talked about, yes. pretty realism rules, everything counts. You're looking at how many torches do I have? Arrows. So the rules for that is basically, I think this is how it's written, or this is at least how we play, is that you fire an arrow, say you fire 10 arrows. You If you, if you take time to go and recover them, you can recover half of your arrows. Yeah. So actually it becomes really important on a long adventure I've got 12 arrows to start with or 20 arrows that, you know, a full quiver of arrows. 
if I shoot an arrow now and later on higher levels, two arrows around, you can eat through your supply of arrows quite quickly. Yeah. And after each combat, there's quite often a discussion of like, oh, who's got arrows? You know, can I have an yes. arrow? And there's like a role play moment over over the arrows or like, can I use orc arrows? I'm not sure we're allowed to use orc <laughs> arrows. That feels like a bad thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I think the resource management part of the game is really big and is really worthwhile. And like the, we've had examples of the arrow situation where after a combat, we've actually been down low enough that not all of us, because most of the characters do have bows, not all of us can actually have arrows. And we've had to actually say, right, from now on, this character is only going to be a frontline fighter and not mm. going to fire a bow. And that changes the tactics for next time around. And I think with a battle this epic, I think there's a sort of... Uh, it sends a signal to the player having a battle on that stage. Like, this is important. This is big. You can use some of your resources. Because mm. I think players naturally are like, oh, I've got this like amazing ability. I'm going to save it. I'm going to keep saving it. I'm going to save it. It's like any video game RPG you play. Yes. When you're like, right, I'm not going to use this potion. You never it use it. Important. You I'm never use Witcher. it. I never use yep. any of the stuff in The Witcher. Never use any of Anyone you're finishing it. It's really Keep playing. And you end up at the end of the game with your inventory stacked with all this cool stuff, which you always said yeah. to yourself, yeah. I'll save it for something important. <laughs> Why are you I think always gold? I never you've got, yeah, exactly. You've got to, I think you should use it. And I think arriving at this keep, there's like dozens of orcs. It was like, right, this is a big battle. Let's throw our yeah. ability. Let's be yeah. heroic. Let's use our abilities <laughs> and use them up, which is what we did. But it did mean at the end of it, we yeah. were... Not you're quite. You're, so there, yeah, there was this really interesting dynamic at the end. You'd, you'd survived, and I, I was kind of surprised that you kind of stuck in. Uh, designed this to not really. I wasn't really thinking you're going to go in and kill all the orcs. I thought you would scout around, look, maybe try and sneak into the basement to see if you yeah. could find the treasure. That's sort of how I had imagined your approach in your head. When you went straight into them, I was like, this is going to be quite hard. <laughs> you survived. I was impressed, and then. This is, this is a conflict always in this game because I, I'd sort of foreshadowed you'd got that lore, you knew there was this area under underneath and when I prep something, I want you guys to see and explore it but I'm also conscious that there's uh, you know you don't, I don't want everyone to die and people are sensitive, <laughs> so you know I didn't really have any part in the discussion, I think I just stayed silent for ages and there was this huge long discussion yep. between the characters and we talked about this and I think in Torval's episode like there was a debate and like there were very different approaches between Theodric and yep. Theodric was quite central. And the party is fairly split. And I think the agreement in the end was that they would go downstairs and have a look, but Theodric and Carhu weren't going to go because basically Theodric thought it wasn't sensible to go downstairs. And Carhu was so, you know, Theodric's a fan of the of the Bjornings, and Carhu really looked up to him, so he sort of sided with his decision and yeah. supported him. Is that that's that's kind of what happened and it was really good role play because theodric as i was playing him he'd been told by bjorn head north investigate slay any orcs and i think as part of the kind of wrap-up of the combat we'd established a bit about what the relationship with the different orcs was mm. so from my perspective theodric had achieved his mission he'd been mm. north he'd found out more there was an orc outpost i think we'd found maybe either some coins or a letter which linked it to some other orcs theodric's view was we've completed our mission it's important that we get this information back home to bjorn you know we're pretty injured we should turn back 
the other characters, and particularly led by Torvald, who is you know a scholar, he's interested by knowledge and you know the unknown and what might be in the city, was like, but we should explore. And I, I was a bit conflicted because I, I, I like want to be the player who presses the big red button, like have fun. You're in a game, like you know, move forwards, do things. I just didn't think it made any sense for Theodric to advocate going to do this like dangerous dungeon delve after he'd completed his mission. I think I just had to eventually push you guys to make a decision because yes, um, there, there 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 is like a in in. in you know, I don't know, it depends. We're a very role-play heavy group and it sometimes can devolve into like debate too much. And sometimes you just <laughs> yes. need to be a bit, you know, I've, some one of the things I do is like set timers in real life occasionally if it's a really high stress. This wasn't really that moment, but yeah, there was a need to make a decision. And it ended up just splitting the party and uh, they went downstairs and found a troll, essentially. Yes. That's what the foreshadowing <laughs> had been that was living in this sort of cave area, <laughs> smashed in. It was so bad. It was so bad. Now, Theodric, had, he was not going to abandon them because he was the leader. He was also the healer. But he was very stubborn, like, I am not going downstairs. And I was thinking to myself, I'm hoping the party won't. As soon as they do, I will have to follow. But I'm not going to let on. They went down first, and there was a troll at the bottom, and they called up. So Theodric and Carr, who the two Bjornlings had to sort of charge down. And we went from the battle above had been this big, epic, it was a really big map. Uh, loads of figures to a dungeon, really small cramped room, which we couldn't all fit in. There was a troll there who had a, an attack ability that basically let them swing through multiple characters with mm. their with their hammer or their sword. And uh, it went badly very, very fast. Um, and- <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, I, um, uh, I just came up with that rule on the fly. It was brilliant. It was. I thought it was a. It was. It made perfect sense. Yeah, but that's what I thought as well because the profile was like quite underwhelming in a way. I, I don't know if that's right, but like I just imagine there's this huge big troll and it's swinging around and does one attack against one player. I was like, no, you'd swing and you'd hit all of them. They're in. A, they're a line. Like why? Why wouldn't you do that? You know, we've got the the, the cave troll in in the in Moria. We've got the the trolls in, in gone, you know, like that's what we see them doing. And I was like that. So I'm, I'm it's going to make an attack against everybody. Yeah. And we got to make dexterity saving throws. Yeah. I think that's a, a thing to maybe touch on here in terms of combat and aim is that it is almost all attacks or combat things or traps. Even it's against armor class. And if it's not, it's against deck saving throws. So it's yeah. what I try particularly now as you're getting higher level is to bring in things that are wisdom, wisdom, intelligence, charisma, because people get proficiency in saving throws, which really never come up. And actually the game is basically saying to people, you should get a really high armor class and don't really care about anything else. Yeah. I think it's one of the the few areas where porting it over to to 5e, but then effectively having a game where Mm. high magic doesn't exist. Yeah means that all those things like being proficient at charisma, wisdom, intelligence, saving throws, which in 5e are largely yes. protecting against high-level magic, suddenly doesn't really have that much value. And you have done a good job introducing effects which trigger those those things. And on this, occasion, on this occasion, it was effectively turning the troll's weapon attack into effectively an area of effect attack because it atta- affected everyone in yeah. close and- range. 
and Runin uh, immediately got knocked unconscious. <laughs> like he was in the most like quite a lot of health. He just failed to save, and and then it suddenly it switched from let's let's have an exploration to oh my god, we need to like save Runin and and just get out of here alive. Yeah, I remember Thedric had to basically like push past other characters because he was the one doing the healing. Everyone else was attacking this troll and I was trying to like get round and risk an attack of opportunity to heal Runin. And uh, it was fun. I think it was another good example of you, you, because there was a great deal of logic to the way you designed the city, it made our role play conversation made sense. Thedric saying, I think it's pretty dangerous to go into the unknown now. Maybe we shouldn't do it. The party naturally, and I'm glad we did. Being like, no, we should have an adventure. I'm so we glad went down. Did. It turns out it was super dangerous. Yes. <laughs> Afterwards, turns... I'm pretty sure you like there was a whole interaction where it was it was not like I told you so, because Phaedric yeah. wouldn't say that. But I think Car who did it, he wasn't like in those words. I think Phaedric was who always spoke basically anytime he could use uh, two words instead of one, he did. And it was basically like, this is a lesson. This is a parable about... Richard Torvald actually like, came to you and said, yeah, you were right. And it was like a, a really nice moment, actually, because there's been a bit of tension in yeah. that discussion between the two different viewpoints. And then afterwards, it was this really nice role-playing moment about, oh, actually, you're old and wise, so that's got value. Maybe I should listen to you more. I think that was helped by the fact that once we defeated the troll, we did uncover effectively a treasure trove and got a huge amount of lore. Yes. Um, now, there was still a puzzle to get through. I think there was a wall which... Um, yeah, we should talk about that. Which was tricky, like, almost like a cave wall. It was difficult to get through. So there was a puzzle. To, it wasn't just like we defeated the troll, here's your reward. There was a, a still another element and we knew there was something hidden. And I think Runin, um, being a dwarf, used some of his stonecraft knowledge to kind of identify where there might be a sort of secret access point. Yep. Um, how did that feel as a player? I'm interested because I've got thoughts about how that went. And I, I want to know, honestly, like, was that because I, I find designing puzzles really hard. It is hard. And I think it's because it's one of these things that you are actually relying on the players to be able to in a strange way like everything yeah. else when we're, we're fighting a troll you're not expecting me to fight a troll yeah i roll dice and my character's good yeah. at it. but with a puzzle you are <laughs> expecting the players to be able to solve because we right, don't just say <laughs> next time we play in person when we finally play in person i'll i'll get a troll <laughs> yeah, we're just going to switch to full-on larping yeah um but you, you, you're not just like, oh, there's a puzzle. I'll roll an intelligence roll because that spoils the puzzle. But it, it means sometimes writing a puzzle is really hard because it, it's like if you don't get it, you don't get it. And then is it not very yes. fun for people? It's, it's actually, so this is a complete tangent and we should talk about this in a proper episode. So there's a whole skill in this game called Riddle. And I yes. have at times played around with writing riddles or I even have a book of riddles that I bought and putting them in the game. But it's so hard because it's like either I say the riddle and then I'm like, roll an intelligence check or roll yeah. a riddle check. And then you're like, you're like, you know that the riddle answer is water. <laughs> you know, why didn't I bother? Or I leave it to the players and everyone's like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I've no, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think it's somewhere between the two or actually getting people to roll intelligence check and giving them clues so they can still give it. But sometimes I just feel like I'm just sitting here yeah. and I'm basically asking people, do you know what's in my head? 
And that's the thing <laughs> of puzzles. And, and I think well, maybe what I've learned rather than to just see the problem, because the, the puzzle here was there was um, there was three in the troll hall. Walls are lined with horse heads carved from white stones. They are cra- yes. fine craftsmanship. They're all damaged to some degree. And there's a room is damp. There's obscured with moss and lichen. There um, were three gray horses. So the horses are different colors. And the idea was that there was, uh, uh, I designed it as was three sort of like light gray horses, like the, um, like uh, Shadow Facts is described as being a sort of gray uh, color in the book rather than white. And um, under those horses, there was like a, a hole where you could find this like red arrow that was hidden in the room somewhere and then put it into there and rotate it and that would open them up. And the idea was that if you rolled a successful lore check and then they would know that it was free marshals ridden mark and they would ride these grey horses. And that was the link, was that because the tomb was of a marshal of Rohan. Yes. But there was like a whole lot of stuff gated behind like checks and stuff and knowledge and lore to get to that point and to figure it out and then to also find the arrow and to do that. So I had like a load of different things I wrote down in advance, which was like, if they do a perception check, then give them this information. You know, one of the walls seems to be a different conception to show that there's a there's an area that's um, hidden. Or like noting that the courses are different colours and um, investigation check to find that there was these like indents and be like... So I tried to like make it so that you could solve it in different ways. But yeah. I think maybe what I've learned from puzzle design is to go in with an idea of what's in the room and what it looks like an idea of what will happen when they solve the puzzle, but not really have it set in stone how to solve the puzzle. Because when I've done that, I've found, and this one, for example, I've just found like people weren't, I knew what I wanted them to do and they weren't doing it. And then everyone was finding that a bit frustrating. Whereas if you don't really have an answer in your head, or if you do have an answer, having it open, and then yeah. someone comes up with this really cool idea, and he's like, yeah, that was it. Well done. Great. I totally agree. Uh, and I, I have separately heard that advice and I've tried that and I totally agree. And it's more, it, it's just more fulfilling all around because the players, rather than feeling like, oh, they finally guessed what you want. They've just had done a cool thing, which worked, which feels great as players. Yeah, it it's also is less stressful. For, it's yeah, not a exactly. puzzle solving game. Although I would say converse to that, but playing Curse of Strad, <laughs> right? And then the, I know that it's a pre-written module. And I know that you have like homebrewed some stuff in and there's stuff from Reddit. And I don't, I don't know what those are because I've not been on that subreddit. Uh, as tempting as it is. <laughs> um, no. Uh, so, yeah, so there... I know that like when there's a puzzle, it's usually pre-written and there's a set answer. And in some ways that's really cool because I know, you know, if, I, if we just don't get it, then we just don't get it. And Strad is a punishing game. So there's been yes. times where, you know, we just not figure stuff out. Um, it's sometimes hard not to metagame a little bit like there's a gap on the map. So we'll, we know there's, <laughs> there's an ending. So. There must be a secret room there. Yes. Um, so yeah, puzzles... I know we were talking about combat and I've sort of hijacked it to talk about puzzles, but I think it's really challenging and it's a really talking thin thing. So Gandalf yeah, for the Gate really of Moria, you know, which path to go down, riddles with Gollum and Smeagol, but I, I'm just not sure how best to sometimes to run those and hope I'm getting better at it. But I definitely think as a part of the game that's really difficult to prep for well. 
I think you're right. I think there is a marked difference between puzzles and riddles as well, because I think with a puzzle, which is a, a physical thing, you can describe the environment and then let the players solve it. Or not. They may not come up with a good idea, in which case you think, fine, you know, you've not solved this. With a riddle, it's harder, because if you give them this exact eloquent riddle, I think the players know that they can't just come up with a good idea. Like they either say the word or they don't say the word. <laughs> yeah. like, if you just give a different answer and as the DM think, yeah, that's fine. I think the players know that that's not what the actual answer to the well riddle done. is. I think they're there. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, quite, that's, that's, not, that's not really like an adult adult interaction. That's like a parent child one. That's, um, we should um, put like a pin. One. We should put a pin in riddles, I think, because it's well worth returning to because it's a big part of Tolkien. It's one of my favourite parts of The Hobbit. And You're right. Yeah. That's a I've whole not, episode. It could be a whole episode. That's a spoiler. I foreshadowed because... that. Foreshadowing, Jake. So okay. you, you got past the riddle. The, the, not the riddle. The, <laughs> the puzzle. The puzzle, eventually. Um, I don't think it went as well as I'd hoped planning it. Um, I'd maybe overplanned it. Who knows? And you got inside and then there was this tomb, which was meant to be this tomb of uh, an old lord of the, the Eithed. And inside were, well, what, what do you remember? I... Well, there were several things. There were treasures, there were weapons, like really ornate weapons, which were themed around the horse lords. And then on the, I think it was on the ceiling was this really elegant and intricate map of the area but obviously from when Framsburg was a city rather than now so it had things on it which were not on contemporary maps and was missing some things which obviously we now knew about and that actually became really important like 30 sessions later yeah I think there was a piece of lore on that map which we knew about and you told us and we just hadn't processed as it being important yeah which came back and we were like wow like what a callback it was that there had been something on this map which we'd seen and which we'd picked out being like hey that's unusual and it was then woven into the story yeah there's there's um, a couple there's a couple of really cool things in that area and i won't go into too, too much detail about one of them because one of them is just like so there's a story of Scaffer, the, the, the dragon, and it's killed. And we mentioned before that the dwarves were pretty pissed off because this they felt that the horde of this dragon, Scaffer, yeah. uh, was, you know, taken from the dwarves. And they're probably right, but then there was this tension to do it. And there's a thing in the book that some of the dwarves didn't let this settle. Um, Fram took the dragon's teeth and gave them this necklace of, of dragon teeth and said this is more rare than anything in the dragon's horde. And they ruminated on this and felt angry and they hid nearby in a hidden house. Um, and they had this sort of fortress that they could watch the city of the earth nearby, which which has come up in the game, I think. You do you yep. know about this? Yes. So it has. um, and I don't think you've been in it, but I no, actually prepped all that for this. I thought you might from the city of the earth had run to there. We'll come on to what you're running from in a second. Uh foreshadowing. And there was also the other thing that was in this area, which I thought was really cool, was as a this like tower. And in the again in the book, there's just there's a mention, Froy mention line of there's an old tower from uh, men at the time of the the armies of Angmar defeated and destruction of the northern king of Arn, or that they built a tower to keep watch on the north or Mount Gundabad. I was like, that's cool. Again, I was just bits and bits. Uh, and at that point, 
I knew that there would be a map to it because I was like, they would know about it at that time. Yeah. And I also knew that was going to be a really important location in the campaign. Yes. And I didn't yet know why or what would be there, but I knew that it would be really important. And it was. So I, I loved like that bit of foreshadowing and I drew this map and put it on roll 20 because you, they copied it down. So that was a really nice bit of building the world. And that's what's so good about the book because there's lots of these little snippets and you, you know, there were some characters in that area that I didn't use because I was like, well, I'm not really that interested in them. Uh, but the locations were really, really fun. And that tower has been so important and i remember much much further on we'll maybe get to this one day in the podcast we were we were further along in the story investigating something and we had this the the answer we knew that the next step in our quest was going to be some tower in the north and i you didn't tell us that we already knew but we started talking and we were like where could this tower be and then someone was like hang on We've heard about a tower before, and there was a dawning realization for us as players, and we were so excited. We were like, so "We've known about the tower all along." <laughs> yeah, I love that. I find it hard not to, because, like, you know, when you're prepping, they talked about this the the, the DM roundtable uh, as well. I've just watched it, so it's fresh in my head. Um, that there's this excitement when you're building a, a game, and you've got these great stories, and you want to share it with someone else. But all the people that I knew that play role playing <laughs> games are in the game, so I don't have anyone to to like talk about this with so i found it really hard sometimes when i was like oh this is a great idea uh i love this plot you know like or really exciting things or things that you didn't discover uh yeah. now getting to talk about them so you know that 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 whole thing i i thought that you would you would take a different turn at this point and i really uh was surprised uh, at some of your decisions um which is great because that's what's what's good about a role-playing game. So inside the thing, you found a couple of weapons and artifacts. I don't know if any of them have become that important. There was a helmet, they were, a shield, they were more, a yeah, There was a saddle as well. Um, yeah. uh, a sort of um, ceremonial saddle. They were, they've, I think they've been important more symbolically than like mechanically. We've used them to either give to people as gifts or as almost evidence of something rather yeah. than actually using them as a... A, a kind of a magical item or anything like that but they they did have significance and we yeah. did carry some of them back yeah, so just like logically what would there be in the tomb of yeah. important people and given the talking sort of the, usually things that are older are, are better quality as this sort of mm -hmm. world slowly decays and magic leaves from the first age onwards you know i thought well these were actually probably be very high quality they're not going to be magical per se but they will have to be wondrous items but not enchanted yes though. yeah i was make sure i get that distinction right in the rules but yeah I, I loved i loved running that and there was a load more lure 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 we were lure. lured yeah by the lore to be yeah. fair there was all this packing done lure pack very expensive <laughs> goods that it was part of the treasure hoard fyi we're um just before we're on that, we are open to sponsorship from anyone, whether that be an internationally recognized butter company or otherwise. Yeah, so I remember, I think I, uh, I'd written that uh, after you've been in the vault, if you spent a lot of time, you would hear voices outside and then the danger emerged that there had been more orcs traveling yep. to the city from Gundabad to check in or where exactly they'd come from, you weren't sure, but 
at this point, it was late in the day, and you realised that there were a lot more enemies arriving, wargs as well, and that you were all not really in the place to fight. I think Runan had gone down, maybe Torwell had gone down. Quite a few party members had gone unconscious. Your healing resources, although a lot of them were there, and this is what I struggled a bit with, uh, Torwell and Theodric being the party. They had a lot of healing resources... So it took a lot to like grind them down, but you were by this point not in a fit state for a fight and there was a decision to be made about where to go. And it was a really interesting decision. I remember we managed to sneak back out of the tomb and across that that sort of rickety rope bridge to the point where you'd first described the city and night was falling, it was getting dark. We could hear wolves howling and orcs. And I remember we were presented with the choice of we can effectively flee back to the ford which it wasn't just like around the corner like it was like a day or two's travel i think yeah, it's a long way spent. or runin knew that the the hidden dwarf house was nearby and he said quietly to theodric that he knew of a, a place of secret dwarven safety nearby and there was a good bit of role play between us about what was the right thing to do. And he didn't actually tell, obviously the, the other players knew because we discussed it, but he didn't tell the other players. He kind of kept the dwarf house secret. We discussed it a bit and it was a really difficult decision. And I think from Theodric's point of view, his feeling was it was important this information got back to Bjorn. Like that was the priority. And it was either retreat the route we had come or go on into the unknown to the dwarven house. And Theodric's view was we should head back south and there'd be a chase rather than trying to sneak to this dwarven house. And because of that, I know that you'd prepared the dwarven house and, mm. and Runin was excited by it. And that was this, this, you know, a different, it was a fork in the road that we just, we just didn't take. Yeah. And it actually would have been quite different uh, adventures. So like I prepared the house, I was thinking, well, you'd have this chase and you would get there and the potentially if you made it away from the enemies, there'd be this sort of siege and what was going on inside there. And there was an NPC inside that you would meet and it'd be a very tense interaction. There'd be Father Beardless, who you oh, yeah. met later on, who's been like quite uh, an important NPC at points uh, to talk to. So yeah, and I prepared a map. And, you know, I've got all the stuff ready, which is great because like, you know, uh, with this game, particularly when you're in the same area for a while, anytime I've prepped something I've not used, I'm like, great, I've done future prep. Like, you know, it's not a downside. And it was yeah. a really great moment because when I prepared the, the journey rules i knew that there might be this choice so i prepared both ways i prepared maps for both directions and yeah it led to really interesting discussion i really love the way that stuart played Runin in that moment yeah because he wasn't less like hey guys i know about a secret you know don't you know he he kept in that way but trusted theodric i don't think theodric told anybody else either no he didn't ever told anyone else there's that secret between them that being entrusted with that knowledge and so the group came to the decision to have the flight to the Ford. And I think that's where we'll pick up next time because it was quite quite the cliffhanger and quite a moment. So we covered a lot in this episode. The the adventure to the City of the Aether, a kind of classic tabletop RPG adventure. We've had a social encounter, a combat encounter. We've had puzzles. We've had different battles. Uh, we've had loot and lore like we've had a bit of everything in this one adventure and what happens next was quite a dramatic change of pace so why don't Mm. we save it for 
our next episode. Yes, there's still a lot more to talk about. It was a really fun plot hook in the book and really captured my imagination. And I still think of it fondly as this, probably like the first like classic adventure that I'd run that I felt really satisfied with afterwards and with the first time with all six players as well. It was yeah. really fun. It was really special and uh, more to come. So we shall pick up next time. No emails except on party business and comments, suggestions, and questions to thefellowshipphase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return. On the next episode of The Fellowship Phase.